Hello dreamers and welcome to this week's episode. Before we get started, I have a few quick notes about the show. This is an independent ad-free podcast, which means I depend solely on you, the listeners, to keep the show moving and there are a couple of ways that you can help. You can leave a nice review on Apple Podcasts or whichever directory you get your shows on. You could recommend us in true crime discussion groups or you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you have an extra dollar or two a month, you can subscribe to the show's Patreon. And in doing so, you will gain access to dozens of exclusive full-length episodes that you won't hear anywhere else. And you don't have to be subscribed to the $5 or $10 levels. Every subscriber gets to listen. And if a subscription is not something that you're interested in, but would still like to make a contribution to me and the puppies, you can do so through PayPal using the email californiapod at gmail.com. This week, I would like to thank Diane C., Barbara J., Susan B., Lee B., Darren W., Lisa B., Jennifer R., Vanessa I., Vicki with two eyes, Gina B., Kelly G., and Katie U. for either becoming a new subscriber, for coming back, or for raising your pledge to the next tier. And if you subscribed in the last couple of weeks and have not yet heard your shout out, it will be coming up soon. And if you've subscribed a while back and you haven't heard your name, shoot me a message and I will add you in a future episode. I would also like to thank Nate for suggesting this episode. He claims that this is a story that has not been featured on any other podcast out there. So just remember, you heard it here first. All right, let's get to it. It was 26 years ago last month, sometime in the middle of the night, on Tuesday, November 12th, 1996, going into Wednesday the 13th. A 27-year-old woman fell to her death from the balcony of her 8th floor hotel room at the Sheraton in the City of Industry, California. It was a drop of about 100 feet or 30 meters. Her body was discovered around 6.30 the next morning by a hotel guest who then called 911. If she had made a sound as she fell to her death, nobody heard it. But that doesn't necessarily mean that nobody knew about it. And because this woman wasn't discovered, until several hours after her death, it would initially lead one to believe that she was in her room alone when she went over the balcony railing. If someone was with her, surely they would call for help immediately, wouldn't they? Perhaps not, if, say, they're a garbage human being. Was this fall a tragic accident? Was it a deliberate act of suicide? Or was it something more nefarious? Unsolved Mysteries aired a segment about this woman's death less than two months after it happened on January 3, 1997. At the time, it was still early for the authorities looking into the case. They weren't 100% clear which direction the investigation was going to take them. It wasn't that they didn't have a person of interest, because they did. The problem was, is that this person began telling a series of stories 
that changed from one iteration to the next each time his story was proven to be untrue. As it turned out, prior to plummeting to her death, this woman was not alone. And knowing that fact changes things, doesn't it? When I posed to you the question again, was this suicide, homicide, or an accident? It does change things, especially when I tell you that this person who was with her not only failed to call for help, he carried on the following morning as if nothing happened. Business as usual. He got up, he got ready for work, he checked his phone messages, he made some phone calls, including calls to the woman he knew was dead. Afterwards, he went down into the lobby and acted as though he was waiting for her to come down too. So what happened that night in room 813? Her name was Sandra Oriana. She was from Texas. She was engaged to be married. She was in California on a business trip with her boss. That very day, November 12, 1996, she had turned 27 years old. So yes, she traveled and was working on her birthday. So because the only witness to Sandra's death is a lying dirtbag, we can't really know for sure if she died on her actual birthday or not. That dirtbag's name is Robert Salazar. At the time, he was 33 years old. He was married with two children. And he was the general manager of operations and vice president for a Houston, Texas-based company called Skillmaster, which is an employment agency. Sandra was his subordinate, her role with the company being a workers' compensation claims specialist. They traveled together from Texas to California for this business trip and were staying in separate adjacent hotel rooms. However, whether or not this trip was all business depends on who you're talking to. Only two people could have known the truth, but only one of them would live to tell the story. When the person who found Sandra's body the next morning made the grisly discovery, 911 was called. I personally don't know exactly what a human body looks like after a fall from a height. I've covered a case involving a man falling from the 25th floor of his apartment building, that one is on Patreon, by the way, and the details of his condition as described by his wife were quite disturbing. I also covered the fall of Ray Rivera, if you remember his story was featured in the first season of the new Unsolved Mysteries, where he fell from the top of a building in Baltimore and pierced through the roof of an adjacent building. The details of his death were also pretty gruesome as well, and I'm going to talk more about Ray a little bit later on in this episode. And while this fall that we're talking about today is from a lower height and involves a smaller person, I'm sure that the sight of it was disturbing. When I entered Sandra's weight and the height from which she fell into the velocity calculator, she would have been traveling at a speed of approximately 50 miles per hour or 80 kilometers per hour. That fall happened in the middle of the night. Anybody present with Sandra at the time that she fell would have known, as common sense dictates, that there is 0% chance of surviving. 
Well, let's say the chances are infinitesimally small. I don't think I researched the survivability of a fall when I covered the aforementioned cases, but I believe I did when I did an episode on some airplane disasters, if I'm not mistaken. I looked it up again for today's story and I found a different but interesting article on Forbes.com about how far a human being can fall and survive. It stated that people normally don't survive a fall from very high. A study conducted in France found that people can typically survive falls from anywhere between 20 to 25 feet or 6 to 8 meters, but anything higher than that, it gets pretty deadly pretty quickly. 287 fallers were studied, and the research showed that every fall from 8 stories, which is where the distance that Sandra fell from, or higher, were fatal 100% of the time. The Forbes article was about a 300-foot or 90-meter fall in Colorado's Rocky Mountains that was survived by a 28-year-old woman who was rock climbing with her boyfriend. The article referenced an obscure journal called the Scandinavian Journal of Trauma, Resuscitation, and Emergency Medicine, and it featured the case where, quote, a rock climber survived an unsurvivable injury consisting of a vertical freefall from 300 feet or 90 meters onto a solid rock surface. Now, before anyone starts running around accusing divine intervention of coming between this woman and certain death, there are a couple of caveats. First, the first leg of her fall was a straight vertical drop of 200 feet or 60 meters onto a flat rock surface and the second leg of her fall was another 100 feet or 30 meters after that. So technically, she survived two separate falls that on their own would both be fatal, usually. And secondly, both she and her boyfriend were experienced rock climbers. They would have both been in excellent health. He was able to get to the victim very quickly, so he would have been able to have done what he could have done to help and to call for emergency services. And thirdly, the woman was wearing a helmet. The fall was caused by a climbing harness failure. And when her boyfriend had climbed down to where she had landed, he was stunned to find her still alive. She was breathing and moaning, but unresponsive when spoken to or to any kind of physical stimuli. And with that, this woman became the survivor of the highest vertical freefall onto a hard surface ever documented. The article estimated her velocity to have been between 75 and 80 miles per hour or 120 to 130 kilometers per hour. And she sustained a litany of injuries. I skipped the Forbes article and found the Scandinavian Journal article to see the list. Because it's a medical journal, I'm going to try to dumb it down as much as possible for us lay people who aren't in the field of medicine. So this woman suffered blunt force trauma to the chest, a fractured sternum, two collapsed lungs, pulmonary contusions in both lungs, fractures to right ribs 1 and 2, fractures to left ribs 9, 10, and 11, blunt force trauma to the abdomen, a grade 3 laceration to the liver and grade th 3 being greater than 3 centimeters deep, 
a grade two spleen laceration, grade two being between one and three centimeters deep, a devascularized right kidney, devascularized meaning a loss of blood supply to that body part due to the destruction of blood vessels, mild traumatic brain injury thanks to the helmet, fractured vertebrae at T6 which is at about stomach level, traumatic spinal cord transection which is a cut in the spinal cord, grade A paraplegia which is the least severe level of paralysis below the T6, a fractured L1, which is in the lower back, pelvic ring fracture, bilateral L5 fractures, bilateral pubic fractures, sacral fractures on the left, sacral fractures being in the hip and pelvic region of the body, a fractured right femur, fractured right ankle, and fractured heel bones. I'll include a link to the article so you can take a look at it for yourself if you want to. The woman's x-rays look like the inside of a toolbox with all the metal parts and screws and rods that were used to piece her back together. But she survived, though it may have cost her eight out of her nine lives to do so. Based on her injuries, you could probably tell that the woman landed feet first. And those who have studied her fall have come to the conclusion that that was the critical factor when it came to her survival. I mean, if there was ever an ideal way to fall from those heights at that speed, it's feet first. That way, the lower body will absorb the brunt of the force, minimizing the damages to most of the vital parts of the human body. I also vaguely remember listening to an episode of the Generation Y podcast, where this man sabotaged his wife's parachute when they went skydiving and she, by some randomness in the universe, managed to survive also. I'm not going to go through the various factors which led to her survival because I've veered off topic long enough, but Sandra Oriana did not survive her fall and the person who was with her at the time would have known that. The detective assigned to Sandra's case was Ray Rodriguez. After his 33-year-long career, Sandra's would be his last. About an hour and a half after that employee discovered Sandra's body, Detective Rodriguez received the call to come down to the Sheraton Hotel for a possible suicide. In an interview with 48 Hours back in 2003, Detective Rodriguez stated, There was a lot of trauma. The only thing that I've seen close to that is like when someone has been hit by a train. The body was naked except for a little camisole top that was on the body. That was concerning to me right then and there at the initial time that I first saw the body. It had been only once or twice that I've encountered a naked suicide. Detective Rodriguez was told that the woman found in a pool of her own blood 10 stories below her hotel balcony was 27-year-old Sandra Oriana of Houston, Texas. While they were getting their investigation started, a hotel guest from the room next to Sandra's emerged and identified himself as Robert Salazar. Visibly upset, Salazar began to cry and needed to sit down as he explained that Sandra was his employee and that they were traveling together for business. On the verge of hysterics, Salazar was falling apart as he sat down on the floor of the hotel hallway. Being questioned by police on the scene, 
Salazar explained that he and Sandra had gone out to dinner the night before. They were celebrating her 27th birthday and had consumed several alcoholic drinks. Salazar said that Sandra had become pretty intoxicated, so he escorted her to her hotel room and left without incident. This would be the first of a number of versions of the events of the previous evening that Salazar provided to investigators. Police were immediately skeptical of Salazar because a search of Sandra's room had already been underway and two things stood out. They discovered a pair of men's underwear on the floor of her hotel room and they found a men's shoe that had been pretty tightly wound up into the sheets at the foot of the bed. When police searched Salazar's hotel room, they found the mate to the shoe and underwear of the same brand and size that were discovered in Sandra's room. Faced with this evidence, Salazar quickly pivoted to the next version of his story, the one where he admitted that he and Sandra had sex the night before, that they went out onto the balcony, and as they engaged in the sexual activities outside, she accidentally went over the railing falling to her death. In his official statement, Salazar stated, I was rubbing on her, she was rubbing on me, she, she turned around, and then all of a sudden, she grabbed the balcony, pushed herself up to turn over, and when she did that, she just went over. Detective Rodriguez did not believe this was an accident and that there was foul play involved, that it was Salazar that somehow caused Sandra to go over that balcony railing. Based on his initial assessment of the scene, Detective Rodriguez said in his interview, I believe that they were both intoxicated. I believe that Robert Salazar made sexual advances onto Sandra. I think that she was on the bed and then that she pretty much passed out. I think that he started making a sexual advance on her and then she woke up. She was startled by it and I think she fought him. So obviously I wasn't there at the scene and I didn't get a look at the condition of Sandra's hotel room. But based on the bits of information that I had about it, I don't think that the detective was that far off. The problem is that it doesn't matter what the detective thought happened, it only mattered what he could prove. But the shoe being wrapped up the way that it was gives me pause. So Sandra could have been on the bed passed out, right? Her blood alcohol content was 0.22, which is four times the legal limit at the time of her death. Salazar most likely took his shoes, pants, and underwear off, and it's likely that he was standing at the foot of her bed, taking her clothing off also with intentions of having sex with her. Because remember, Sandra was naked from the waist down. Then, like the detective said, she may have started to come to, and that's when a struggle may have ensued and Salazar's shoe got all twisted up in the bedsheet at the foot of the bed. That could have very easily happened while a struggle between the two of them ensued and he was intoxicated as well. Sandra may have, in her intoxicated state, run towards the balcony to get away from him. She may not have wanted to run towards the door leading to the hallway because she didn't have most of her clothing on. And then the struggle continued out onto the balcony, and at some point she went over the railing. 
That's only my opinion or a possible scenario of what may have happened. Salazar then hastily gathered up his things, forgetting his one shoe and his underwear, and then went next door to his own hotel room and waited for someone else to find Sandra's body. Detective Rodriguez went on record stating that he believed, based on the evidence, that Salazar purposely harmed Sandra, knocked her unconscious, picked her up, and threw her over the balcony. If that's the case, then this would be one very brutal murder. There are a number of factors that led the detective to arrive at that theory, which I will go over with you as we make our way through the story. The smallest of details are important when it comes to each of us listening to this for ourselves to decide what we think at the end of this. And one of those small details, it actually really isn't that small. In fact, it's kind of a glaring detail and it's the fact that Robert Salazar went to his room for the night and took no further action. He did not call 911 or the hotel lobby. He did not hurry down the eight floors. He did not run outside. He did not go looking for Sandra. He did not attempt to provide her with any help or get her any help. He just went to his room and sat there. I had an urge to say that he just went to his room and went to bed to sleep it off, but I don't know if the guy even got a wink of sleep. It seems like it would be impossible considering his employee just flew off her eighth floor balcony. He may have been drunk enough, though, to have simply passed out, but it's hard to say when the only witness is a lying sack of poop. One of the members of law enforcement who responded to the scene that morning was one of the first to speak to Salazar directly. This would have been anywhere between six or seven hours to possibly even as many as nine hours after it was suspected that Sandra went over the balcony. What immediately stood out to this officer was the fact that it appeared that Salazar had some kind of markings on his face. Perhaps these were markings left on him by Sandra herself. Maybe when he made that sexual advance and she rebuffed him, a fight ensued that he began attacking her and she fought back, leaving those marks. But he ended up getting the best of her, possibly rendering her unconscious. And then to prevent her from reporting this incident and potentially ruining his career and his marriage, he threw her over the balcony in order to silence her. Another thing that was a really bad look for Salazar was the fact that he not only never made any phone calls to hotel security or to 911 to report that Sandra had fallen from her balcony, the calls that he did make appeared to be an effort on his part to cover his tracks, to provide himself with an alibi. He called Sandra's hotel room twice, leaving two messages on the hotel system's voicemail for her and at least one of them asking where she was at. Both of those messages were left after she had gone over the balcony during a time when Salazar was very well aware of the fact that there was no way Sandra would be answering the phone or returning any calls because she was somewhere below her balcony dead. I mean, he could have been having a Casey Anthony moment, a moment which lasted 31 days apparently, where she believed Kaylee was actually alive and that she was okay because her dad told her so, so she believed that to be the case, right? That just like Casey, Salazar sat there in his room telling himself that Sandra was okay and just decided to go on about his life as if, right? Whatever. 
It was a troubling detail for Detective Rodriguez that Salazar not only called one time, but he called twice. But, dreamers, you know, I have to be honest with you, I didn't find that detail all that chilling or troubling. However, this case did happen 26 years ago. The telephone has come a long way since then, and these criminal cases, people who have committed crimes through the years, they do lots of funny stuff with their phones, and this isn't the first time we've seen someone leave a voicemail for someone who was known by the caller to be dead because they made them that way, Jody Arias, and it's happened a whole bunch of times. And the opposite happens too when there's a pattern of calling and texting that goes on between two people, and then one of those people goes missing and then later turns up dead, and the other person never sent another text or makes another call to that person ever again. I mean, it's all circumstantial, but neither one is a very good look. But in the end, Robert Salazar was arrested one day after Sandra's death. So now we're going to get into some of what Sandra's family made of all this. And I'm going to tell you while listening up front that I really don't put a whole lot of stock into anything the various members of her family had to say. That's just my own opinion. Because for me, it's kind of like when Maura Murray's family, including her father, for years would say that Maura was the all-American girl, a model student, a tremendous athlete, a perfect daughter, blah, blah, blah. Her father even said early on that Mora was in good spirits and had absolutely no reason in the world to run away from her life. Yeah, not so much. And I am not going to say that Sandra's family is as wrong or as inaccurate as Mora's was. I just take it with a grain of salt and hope that there are other aspects of the case that can give us a better, more clear picture of what was really going on with Sandra at the time of her death. Sandra's family believed that she was murdered and that her murderer was her boss, Robert Salazar. When Sandra died, she had a boyfriend who was away working in Hong Kong and that Sandra was contemplating joining him there. However, years later in 2006, the same person who said that, Sandra's sister, said that Sandra was contemplating a job transfer to California so it would be easier to fly out of LAX to visit her boyfriend. While the two versions of what Sandra's future plans were consistent in that she was in this relationship, that the man that she was with was in Hong Kong, and that Sandra wanted to see him or visit him in some capacity, the statement itself is inconsistent in a big way. Either she was thinking about moving to California, or she was thinking about moving to Hong Kong. Maybe she was weighing both possibilities, but even so, the stories that Sandra's sister told were six years apart, but both served the same purpose to try and show that Sandra was in a relationship that she was serious about and was planning for the future and would have never had an affair. But how serious was she if she was spending the evening of her 27th birthday drinking, dancing, and making out with her boss? It's just more questions that we really don't have the answers to because Sandra's not here. So Sandra's sister, her name is Catherine, she said that Sandra had complained about Salazar to her recently about him making numerous unwanted sexual advances, and it's because of that that he murdered her. Catherine believed what Detective Rodriguez opined, that Sandra was alone in her room with Salazar and that he tried to rape her. 
that she fought him and he threw her off the balcony. Sandra's aunt, who had a very close bond with her, had stated in an interview that Sandra complained about some of the things that Salazar would say to her, that he would make rude sexual comments, and that at the time of her death, that she was actively looking for another job in order to try and get away from him once and for all. And when the whole business trip to California came up and arrangements were made for her to join him, that she was very unhappy about having to go, seeing it as just another ploy on Salazar's part to create a situation for the two of them to be alone so he could try and take advantage of her. And they both agreed that there was no way Sandra would have ever gone out onto that balcony because she was terrified of heights and she did not like being on balconies. Taking what Sandra's family had to say at face value, Detective Rodriguez further stated that he did not believe Sandra would have ever willingly put herself in a position of being out on that balcony wearing nothing but a camisole. So just like I decided to take Sandra's family's statements with a grain of salt, the district attorney of Los Angeles County at the time uh, decided that two days after Salazar was arrested, that the case was too flimsy, that there just wasn't enough evidence to prove murder, and ordered Salazar to be released from custody. There would be no murder charges filed against him, at least for now. A couple of months later, the official ruling was made at the coroner's office that Sandra's manner of death was homicide. This whole problem with the district attorney apparently could be traced back to the recent acquittal of O.J. Simpson, a huge high-profile loss for the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office. They just weren't going to be so quick to prosecute, I guess, like they once had pre-OJ. They were now much more cautious when deciding whether or not to move forward on a case, despite the fact that there were and have only ever been 12 people on the face of the planet who believed OJ should not have been convicted of capital murder, not including his attorneys, but I seriously doubt that they believed him either. So I guess this is what the OJ effect was for the DA's office. They wanted detectives to bring them slam dunk cases only. Well, Detective Rodriguez was not going to be deterred. He didn't want Sandra's case to end up in a stack of cold and forgotten cases. It was important for him that he got justice for her and her family. It wasn't going to be a matter of who done it. There was only one and one individual who was in the room with Sandra when she went over the balcony. It was more of a matter of what was it that he had done? Was this an accident and he just acted like a massive asshole by not calling 911 for help when Sandra fell because he wanted to distance himself from it all to protect himself, his job and his family? I mean, we know and he knew that there was no hope for Sandra, right? Once she fell, it was over she wasn't going to be alive no matter what anybody did i don't want to sound callous i'm just trying to dig into this guy's mind a little bit his train of thought his state of mind his way of applying his own logic maybe he didn't think that there was any point in ruining his life too you know it's already too late there wasn't anything anyone could have done anyway it wasn't going to do anyone any good for him to put himself in the middle of this so he just made the decision to quietly slip back into his own hotel room and spend the rest of the night working on his story, practicing his distraught face in the bathroom mirror. 
Or was Salazar guilty of purposely sending Sandra over that balcony because of an attempted sexual assault gone terribly wrong? Because Detective Rodriguez believes the latter, as soon as Sandra's death was ruled a homicide, he made a beeline to Houston, Texas, in order to try and get a warrant to collect biological samples from Salazar, DNA, blood, and hair, to compare to the evidence collected at the hotel. But in the end, all of that would be irrelevant because he said he was in the room. He admitted to being there. He had every reason for his DNA to be on Sandra and in her hotel room. So let's talk a little bit about the location of Sandra's body, the place where she landed after she went over the balcony. She was approximately 13 feet or almost 4 meters beyond the area that would have been directly straight down from the location of the balcony and the building. In other words, Sandra went over the balcony with a certain amount of force that sent her in a trajectory that caused her to land that distance away from what otherwise would have been a drop straight down. A dummy was put together using a length of fire hose that weighed about the same as Sandra did at the time of her death. Detectives, with the help of a team of engineers and some professional stuntmen, tried to throw that dummy over the balcony to see where it would land if it had gone over in the manner in which Salazar described. Of course, the only way they were able to get that dummy to fall where Sandra had landed was to pretty much have literally thrown it over the balcony using a considerable amount of strength and force. But there was another problem with the whole scenario on the balcony. Salazar's story was that when they were out there, about to engage in some kind of sexual activity, that Sandra had positioned herself somehow on the railing and accidentally fell off. The thing was, there appeared to be only two spots along the railing where the dust that had collected along it had been disturbed. And those disturbed spots appeared to have likely corresponded with someone having walked out onto the balcony and placed their hands on the rail as they looked at the view or something of that nature. It could have been someone coming out there to enjoy the view, or it could have been someone looking down over the railing at the person they just sent flying off the balcony. Either scenario is possible when considering the spots of disturbed dust. To me, and this is my own opinion, but you would think that if someone was messing around on the balcony, engaged in some sort of sexual activity that led up to it, and the railing was part of that, the way that Salazar described, that more of the dust would be disturbed, especially if you're talking about two intoxicated people. If Sandra had done what Salazar had claimed that she had done and was trying to po position herself in some kind of way, that too would create more disturbance in the dust. To me, the only way for there to be no more than those two spots where a person placed their hands to have been disturbed and for someone to have gone over that railing afterwards, that someone would have had to have completely cleared the railing without coming into contact with it at all, which has me thinking that Salazar possibly just picked Sandra up and tossed her over the balcony, causing her to land a good distance away. It sounds kind of plausible based on that evidence. The only other possibility is that Sandra launched herself off that balcony, which means this would have been an act of suicide. 
However, nothing about that specific scenario makes that much sense to me. But stranger things have happened, right? The bottom line, Sandra's death was not ruled a suicide, it was ruled a homicide. There were also no fingerprints found on the balcony either. Detective Rodriguez seemed to think that all of these circumstances were only more evidence against Salazar, but I don't really see it that way. I think it only adds to the confusion of the whole case, but either way, more time would pass without an indictment. Months would pass and eventually years. The district attorney who refused to prosecute Robert Salazar was Gil Garcetti. You may or may not be familiar with his name, but aside from being the dad of the current mayor of Los Angeles, Eric Garcetti, he was the district attorney who oversaw some of Los Angeles's most high-profile cases, many of which I know you're familiar with and several of them we've covered on this podcast. The Office of District Attorney in Los Angeles is in every four-year elected position, and it is not a thing that Garcetti won easily. Prior to being elected to the office, he had worked in a number of capacities for the DA's office for the better part of two decades. The DA that preceded him was Ira Reiner, and he was one who was mired in his own controversies. And because this is something that we've never really talked about, I thought it would be an interesting aside since I know that there are some well-known high-profile cases that were impacted by all this mess in the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office. In 1992, when Garcetti was first running for LA County DA, he was up against his former boss, Ira Reiner, and it was a very heated and contentious campaign, one in which Reiner would eventually drop out of less than two months before the election because he said he could no longer stomach all the negativity. In doing so, he effectively handed the election over to Garcetti on a silver platter, giving up the job that he had held for eight years. Reiner was behind in the primaries and in the polls, and he realized that if he was going to win, things were going to have to get real nasty, stating in the Los Angeles Times article, the only way to win when you're behind is to come on as strong as you can with a highly personal negative campaign. I struggled with that all summer and decided that the game wasn't worth the candle. It comes down to, am I willing to do something I detest in order to hold on to a job that I love? And the answer is no. There was a time when Reiner was thought to have possibly one day been attorney general or even governor of California. But once he dropped out of the campaign against Garcetti in 1992, he went into private practice and never returned to public office. Political observers felt as if his pulling out of the election would be the end of any hopes of any future in politics, and that he did so mostly to spare himself the embarrassment of losing to his former subordinate. Reiner's career as district attorney from 1984 through 1992 was wrought with controversial cases. And like I said, some of them we've covered here on this very podcast. There were cases that he lost high-profile media circus cases like the McMartin Preschool child sexual abuse case, the Twilight Zone movie set tragedy against its director, John Landis, the loss that led to the Los Angeles riots, that case against those four officers charged in the beating of motorist Rodney King, 
all of those we covered on this show. And I believe all three of those were multi-part episodes. Reiner also took a hit when he removed a black judge from presiding over the case involving the three black men charged with the beating of truck driver Reginald Denny in the intersection of Florence and Normandy, which is considered to be the flashpoint of the Los Angeles riots. This was a move that political observers believe resulted in the loss of support and confidence from the black community, a critical demographic when it comes to election time in Los Angeles. Reiner also found himself in some deep poop when a Korean shop owner shot and killed a black girl, but when convicted of voluntary manslaughter was only sentenced to a 20-year suspended sentence and five years of probation, which means no jail time. We didn't do an episode on that particular case, but because that verdict had come down just a few months before the verdict for those officers who beat Rodney King, the case is believed to have contributed to the ensuing Los Angeles riots and to the controversies that dogged Reiner throughout his tenure as district attorney. Things between Reiner and Garcetti were tenuous at best. While Garcetti had assisted Reiner in his first successful run at the office of DA, Reiner would end up demoting Garcetti four years later from his job as chief deputy district attorney. So when Garcetti ran against him in 1992, it was going to be ugly and there was no getting around that. There has never been an official explanation as to why Reiner demoted Garcetti, but during the election campaign, he accused Garcetti of paying himself large amounts of overtime and being an untrustworthy person who should not be elected into any position of power. But Garcetti hit back with what he claimed to be nearly 200 spiral notebooks that he kept while he worked as Reiner's chief deputy, including an evaluation that Reiner himself gave to Garcetti just months before the demotion that said that his performances far exceeded his expectations. Garcetti would go on to win that 1992 election with more than 81% of the vote, he went into office on the heels of the 1992 riots, and his first term would be completely dominated by the O.J. Simpson case, and as you know, a case that his office famously lost on October 3, 1995, when the jury found O.J. not guilty of murdering Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown. Despite that massive loss, Garcetti won his re-election campaign the following year in 1996. His wins would ultimately not turn into a streak because he would lose his 2000 election to Steve Cooley, much of which could be directly attributed to the police misconduct scandal, which included extreme acts of misconduct, allegations that arose in late 1999 within Los Angeles's Rampart Division, commonly referred to as the Rampart Scandal, with more than 70 police officers accused of misconduct, unprovoked beatings and shootings, the planting of evidence, stealing and selling of narcotics, bank robberies, perjury, and all the related cover-up activities. Eventually, 24 officers were found to have committed some kind of wrongdoings. 12 were suspended. 7 were pushed into resigning or retiring. 5 were fired. 106 convictions were overturned, 140 civil lawsuits were filed leading to $125 million in settlements. And Sandra Oriana's death happened 
in November of 1996, just days after Garcetti was reelected to a second term in the wake of the OJ acquittal. And all of this is to say is his office wasn't quick to prosecute any sort of questionable cases, Sandra's being one of them. Steve Cooley would end up holding the office of Los Angeles County District Attorney for three terms until 2012. He ran as the Republican candidate for state attorney general in the 2010 general election, but he lost to then San Francisco District Attorney and current Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris. So it would be the newly elected District Attorney, Steve Cooley, who would agree with Detective Rodriguez to charge Salazar with Sandra's murder finally. In March of 2001, more than four years after she went over that balcony railing, Salazar was arrested in his hometown of Houston, Texas, and extradited back to California to answer to the charge that he was the one who sent Sandra over that railing to her death. Even though five years had passed, Detective Rodriguez never stopped working on Sandra's case, and don't forget, he was retired. He always intended to see Salazar prosecuted for what he believed to be murder. Salazar ended up being granted bail and was subsequently released. He did conduct an interview with CBS while on bail. His wife was nearby, apparently standing by her man. Just as Salazar did not call 911 because he wanted to try and save his livelihood and his marriage, his wife was likely doing what she was doing for the same reasons. Salazar admitted on camera that he was with another woman, saying that he was in a room that he shouldn't have been in, yada, but he said that he did not cause her to fall. He said that he was not attracted to her, yeah right, that he was a recent and happily married man who had just welcomed the new baby, the couple's second. Salazar denying on camera that he wasn't attracted to Sandra just killed whatever little credibility that guy had with me. He was her boss. She was beautiful. If he wasn't attracted to her, then the chances are they wouldn't have ended up in her hotel room in the various stages of undress that they were. She would have gone to her room. He would have gone to his and everybody would have woken up the next morning alive. Salazar did admit that they were drinking and maybe that changes the levels of attractiveness for Salazar. It was Sandra's 27th birthday, the night that she died. He said that they each had four drinks and they were both intoxicated. As stated earlier, Sandra's blood alcohol content was 0.22, four times the legal limit. The evening supposedly started off as a business dinner, but because it was also her birthday, it apparently turned into a pleasure after party. Now, they went to the Sheraton's bar and lounge they had more drinks, and according to Salazar, they had a great time dancing, which led to hugging, which led to kissing. A hotel guest not associated with them or the company named William Boone witnessed Salazar and Sandra together on two separate occasions. Both times, he stated that they looked very happy to be with one another. Salazar described the situation being that of two consenting adults who had way too much to drink, doing something that they should not have been doing. From there, according to Salazar, they both went up to the 8th floor and once they got to the door of Sandra's hotel room, she was the one who became sexually aggressive. 
that he was being the consummate gentleman walking a very intoxicated Sandra to her hotel door, right next to his since they had adjacent rooms. But when she unlocked her door, she opened it and yanked him into the room. Being not attracted to Sandra, as Salazar had stated, he went along with her, right? Because that's what you do when you're not attracted to someone. You allow yourself to be forced into a hotel room against your will. And while Salazar was busy not being attracted to Sandra, they moved over towards the bed where they started to become intimate. Naturally, right? When you're not attracted to someone, you start making out with them and you start taking off your shoes and your pants and your underwear, right? I mean, I hate to see what this guy acts like towards a female he is attracted to, am I right? Or even the average old regular female that he feels neutral about, neither attracted or not attracted to, just women passing by that he doesn't even know. How does a guy who's so not attracted to this very beautiful intoxicated woman that he has alone in a hotel room control himself on a day-to-day basis? I'd like to know. Well then, after not being attracted to Sandra, yet somehow digging deep and pushing all of his non-attractive feelings aside, he forced himself to make out with this woman he's so repulsed by, right, that she suddenly said that she was feeling really hot and wanted to go out onto the balcony for some cool, fresh air. To be alone on the balcony with her unattractive self, right? No, not quite. Salazar decided to go against all those feelings once again that he didn't have for Sandra, feelings of unattractiveness, and followed her out onto the balcony. Because that's what men do when they're not attracted to a woman. When she becomes sexually aggressive and scantily clad and half-naked, you follow her around in the hopes that she doesn't try to come on to you anymore, right? Can you imagine what this world would be like if men and women acted this way towards each other while not being attracted to one another? It would be crazy out there. So anyway, in his own words, Salazar stated, we get out onto the balcony. She's facing outside. I come out behind her and she said, hold on. And she turned around. She lifted her leg and turned around, put it on the railing and lifted herself up. As she lifted herself up, she went over in one balance. She fell over. I stood there probably for 15 seconds and said that did not just happen. And then I said, I have to get out of here. And I grabbed all my clothes. No, you didn't. And I ran to my room. Additionally, Salazar told CBS that he cried and prayed for the next nine hours. And he never called 911. And that, to law enforcement and prosecutors, were the actions of a guilty man. In a 2002 article in the Los Angeles Times, it outlined some of Salazar's testimony at his murder trial. He took the stand and he pretty much had to if he wanted to get his side of the story out there since he was the only witness to what had happened. He, of course, told the jury that the fall was an accident, but ended up revealing more at trial than he did with his on-camera slash wife-to-the-side interview. Though he did admit that he didn't call for help and made inconsistent statements to police out of fear of losing his wife and his job, where he had just recently received a promotion, he did testify that Sandra fell to her death while they were in the middle of making love. He stated, I was scared that if I called, 
that they weren't going to believe me because I was drunk. I was worried about my wife, my kids, my family, that they would leave me. Salazar explained that their trip to Los Angeles was to familiarize themselves with a subsidiary that their company had just recently acquired. When they arrived, they checked into their hotel rooms and spent the day of November 12, 1996, Sandra's birthday, working. Afterwards, they met with a representative of the recently acquired company for dinner. After that representative dropped the two of them back off at their hotel, he said that the two of them spent the evening drinking and dancing at a bar located inside their hotel. It was then that the two of them began kissing. Way unattracted to her, right? Yeah. After becoming intoxicated, they went back up to the eighth floor where their rooms were located. But as he stated in his interview with CBS, Sandra aggressively pulled him into her room and took off her clothing, everything except for her camisole. They began, in his words, making love, as one does when they're not attracted to someone. And it was then that they went out onto the balcony, a move initiated by Sandra the aggressor and Mr. Dopey, I'm not attracted to her at all, Salazar, decided to follow, also partially undressed, where he said they continued making love. When they first got onto the balcony, Sandra was facing away from him with him behind her. He testified that she told him to hold on and she turned herself around to be face to face with him. He then said that she lifted her leg and hopped up onto the railing and fell to her death and that it was all in one motion and there was no chance of him saving her or preventing her from falling in any way. Salazar then went back into the room, grabbed his clothing, leaving some items behind and returned to his own hotel room. He sat there for at least the next nine hours or so before going down into the lobby to start playing dumb before police finally made contact with him. He said he was crying and praying or possibly pretending to have no idea what just happened because that's what he did. Probably spent some of those hours practicing his surprised face, shocked face, oh no face, sad face, or how could this have happened face when police would inevitably come looking for him. And you know what Salazar actually did in the morning after the fall? He just got ready as usual, left his hotel room, went down to the lobby, gave her some phone calls to ask her where she was and pretended to wait for her to come down to the lobby too. So yeah, waiting for a woman he knows ain't never going to come because she's dead. Sounds like a really terrible country song. Now, not that Mr. Salazar isn't a selfish, self-indulgent, lying, cheating, piece of yuck douche sack with absolutely no credibility, integrity, or principles, but let's just say for a second that I don't believe a single word that comes out of his mouth. I'm sure it surprises none of us that the prosecutor questioned the veracity of Salazar's testimony too, asserting to the court that they believed the truth was Salazar purposely plied Sandra with alcohol, that he had sex with her, and then afterwards became worried that he would lose his family and his job if she reported what they had done to his superiors or to human resources. Now, it seems as though that the prosecution was framing this whole thing as a sexual harassment type of situation, where Salazar perhaps was using his position within the company, and he was the number three guy, so he was high up there, using that to put pressure on Sandra to just go along with his sexual advances with little to no pushback on Sandra's part out of fear of losing her job if she didn't comply. It's an age-old story, right? Men in powerful positions taking advantage of new, young, up-and-coming women 
looking for opportunity advancement or that quote-unquote big break. It is quite possible that that's what was going on here. It is what Sandra's family believed what was happening and that they would be able to provide that testimony that would include statements that they say came directly from Sandra herself. Now let's say for a moment, let's play devil's advocate and look at this from another perspective. It's not unheard of for someone to cozy up to a person in a supervisory role, a boss or a person in charge in an effort to secure an opportunity or a promotion. I'm not saying that that is what happened here with Sandra. She, of course, was not around to tell her side of things, to explain what was going on or to put this situation into context for us. Salazar himself never even hinted at this being a possibility either, though even admitting to taking a woman on a trip like this and engaging in these social activities, knowing that she was looking for a career advancement isn't a good look for him. And I don't think that Salazar would say anything that would cast anything other than a positive light on himself anyway. But the fact is, either situation is possible. Either one of them could have been using the other. Or the truth could lie somewhere in between. The detective on the case, we said earlier, believed this to be a situation where there was a sexual assault or an attempted sexual assault, and that things went bad when Sandra began resisting Salazar's advances, and that the end result was Salazar pitching her off that balcony in an effort to save himself, his job, and his family. The evidence that may back up this scenario was the fact that one of Salazar's shoes was found kind of twisted up really tightly in some of the bedding, and that the bedding was pulled off the bed the way that it was. The hurried and frenzied manner in which Salazar left the room, forgetting one shoe and his underwear, that Sandra went over that balcony with such force that she landed several feet away from where she should have landed if she had accidentally fallen over the edge, that the dust was only disturbed in two places where one would place their hands if they were standing at the railing looking over the balcony, and the fact that Salazar went to his room and sat on the information that Sandra had fallen from her balcony and did nothing to get her any kind of help or medical attention and that he lied to police. All of this lends to the notion that this was a violent event and a crime was committed. In taking a closer look at the dust on the railing, there are two important things about what this piece of key evidence says, at least to me, but it depends on who disturbed that dust. Salazar or Sandra? If it was Sandra, we have to ask ourselves, what was she doing at the time that she placed her hands on that railing? She could have disturbed the dust in those two places earlier in the day while going out onto the balcony and looking at the view, getting fresh air, something of that nature. But if you believe what Sandra's family stated, that she was afraid of heights and that she didn't like balconies, then it is likely that she would not have been the one to disturb the dust in that manner. Sandra could have been the one to have left those marks in the dust while she was out on the balcony with Salazar. It lends to his story that they were having sex on the balcony with her facing away from him. Chances were that she was holding on to that railing during the sex. By the time this would have happened, Sandra was pretty intoxicated, so if she had any inhibitions about being out on the balcony, 
those could have been lessened by the alcohol, right? Sometimes people do stuff while drunk that they normally wouldn't do. And that would include having sex with the boss and going out onto a balcony that she would have otherwise avoided. The only scenario I believe that it would have been Salazar being the one who left those marks in the dust is if he placed his hands there to look down over the balcony after Sandra fell. Is that what someone would normally do though? It's hard to say. But if Sandra went over the balcony accidentally and he took a split second to try and attempt to save her, his next action may have been to place his hands on the balcony railing to lean over and look at what just happened. Yeah, I think so. I think that's possible if he wanted to assess if anyone saw Sandra fall. That would mean someone saw him, but no one did see him. He could have stood there for a while looking to see if anyone witnessed the fall and saw Sandra land and to come and help her to call 911, but once she fell, nothing happened. Nobody appeared. All was quiet. All the while, Salazar is standing on the balcony, realizing that he could gather up his belongings and go back to his room and play stupid. I very easily could see him standing there at least for a minute, sizing up the situation and deciding what to do next. The other thing the dust on the railing tells me is that Salazar's story is a lie. There were only two spots where the dust was disturbed that is consistent with a person placing their hands on the railing. He claimed that Sandra lifted her leg, went to hop on the railing and fell over. This is inconsistent with a pattern left on the railing. If she hopped onto it, more of the dust would have been disturbed, and that just wasn't the case. I also have a hard time believing Sandra would have hopped onto a very narrow railing like that. I mean, come on, eight stories up in order to continue having sex in that position. I'm going to show you pictures, some screenshots that I took of the railing and the distance looking down and the width of everything, and you're going to see. Sitting on a railing as narrow as that, and I'm imagining it being about as wide as the railing out on my front balcony, which is metal and probably about an inch, maybe an inch and a quarter wide, it would be challenging to hop on top of it, to stay balanced sitting there while drunk, but then to have sex like that? Eight stories up? I don't think so. But as stated, drunk people would do things that they normally wouldn't do, and I can't ignore the possibility that Sandra's inhibitions went flying off that balcony that night as well. But it didn't happen that way because of the patterns left in the dust. So, what does that mean about Sandra and the moment she went over that railing? Well, it meant that her body cleared it without disturbing any of the dust. And she had to have fallen in a trajectory that caused her to land some 13 feet or almost 4 meters away from the balcony. What does this add up to? To me, it sounds like she had to have been thrown. And that would have taken a pretty good amount of strength and energy, almost to a point that sounds nearly impossible. But the thing is that it is possible because it happened. And it's hard not to eliminate the possibility that Salazar, for some reason, and what sounds like in a very heightened state of emotion, did that to Sandra, that he picked her up and tossed her that far and wide off the balcony, completely clearing the railing and falling to her death 
without making a sound, mind you. Nobody heard a scream. So that also leads us to believe that she possibly could have been knocked out ahead of time. I have to admit, it is very difficult for me to imagine him doing that physically, but it feels like the only thing that makes any sense in the situation that's really hard to make sense of. I feel like we kind of went through some similar confusion when it came to the Ray Rivera case, which I mentioned earlier that I covered on Patreon in case you're sitting there wondering, when did Roseanne cover Ray Rivera? Well, I did. In fact, on a Reddit thread about Ray, a commenter said that I, yours truly, put forth a theory or some ideas about what happened to Ray that no other podcast considered and that it was worth a listen. And if you aren't familiar or you forgot, Ray Rivera is a man who apparently and literally took a flying leap off the top of the Belvedere Hotel in Baltimore, Maryland, and seemed to have traveled in a trajectory that appeared to be almost impossible that sent him crashing through the roof of an adjacent building where he was found several days later. It was one of the stories on the revival of Unsolved Mysteries on Netflix. Like Ray, Sandra landed a good distance away from her hotel balcony in a way that suggested she had either made the leap herself, which I don't think is what happened, or she was actually thrown. I've never thrown an adult human, but I don't imagine it's an easy feat with what is very little room to work with on that balcony. I don't know exactly how wide the balconies are at this hotel. I mean, I was planning on going by there the last time I traveled to California, but I forgot. Next time, I'll try to swing by unless someone else near the city of industry wants to give it a go. But from what I've seen on video, the balcony looks pretty narrow. More narrow than, say, a balcony at your house or apartment where you could put furniture. There is very little room for chairs. It looks to be just a balcony meant for someone to stand out on there only. But anyway, while both of those scenarios, what happened to Ray and what happened to Sandra, feel really impossible, they're not because they happened. So where does that leave us with Sandra's case? The fact that Sandra landed away from the hotel balcony tells me that Salazar's story isn't true. If she went to hop on the railing in order to sit on it, lost her balance and fell backwards, she would have disturbed much more of the dust on the railing and she would have dropped straight down. Human bodies don't take flight and they don't bounce. The only things to consider would be suicide or Salazar picking her up and tossing her. There is no indication that Sandra was suicidal, but you never really know what someone might be going through. However, that balcony is very small. She would have somehow had gone up on there and stood on the railing and launched herself off to have landed that far away. And the dust evidence again seems to lean away from that notion as well. And all of this leaves Salazar being the one to have done this to Sandra. It's really hard to imagine to not only go from having an intimate interlude with Sandra to tossing her off the balcony, but to have the strength to clear the railing and send her 13 feet or 4 meters out. But those are the facts and there's no getting around it. But why throw her with such force? 
maybe it was an effort to make it appear as though she did commit a suicide or maybe that she fell from a different room or a different floor. That is giving this idiot a lot of credit considering he left a shoe and his underwear behind, but stupid people do stupid things. The next important thing that I think was overlooked in this case was Salazar bringing Sandra on this business trip in the first place. Did anyone ever wonder why he chose her? She actually had no business being on that trip. At least, I don't think so, but let me explain. The purpose of that trip was for an executive from Salazar's company to meet with an executive from a company that they had just bought out. The point was for the two executives from their respective companies to meet with each other and to become acquainted with one another. The executive from the California company came to the dinner meeting alone, and it was very possible for Salazar to have done the same thing. Remember, he's the number three guy at his company, but he arranged for Sandra to join him. Sandra was a workers' compensation specialist. Like I said, she had no business being there beyond Salazar wanting her to go. Therein lies the question, did Sandra want to go on this business trip? We know Salazar wanted her to go, but did she want to? The fact is, we can't know for sure. We can speculate and we can infer, but let's assume for a minute that generally speaking, people usually won't do things that they don't want to do. However, when it comes to work, there are millions of people who go to work every day when every single fiber of their existence absolutely does not want to. Not everybody, especially when it comes to things like going to your job every day, but some things you do because you have to. But if you want the money, then you want to work. That being said, by default, we can infer that Sandra wanted to go. It's a free trip to California. She gets to stay at a nice hotel, all expenses paid. It could be a good time. It's possible that Sandra liked Salazar. He's not awful looking. I mean, he's just kind of meh, average. He probably makes good money, but you know, he's married and Sandra has a boyfriend. He says he's not attracted to Sandra, but I don't believe that for a minute. He could have been pretty friendly and flirtatious with her. And I mean, that doesn't make for a terrible workplace if Sandra liked the attention. She was getting perks at work. I mean, on the surface, it could have benefited her to be chummy chummy with a boss. But what are the chances that Sandra actually wanted to go on this trip? If you consider what her family said, then she absolutely did not want to go. She didn't like Salazar. His sexual advances made her uncomfortable. She was allegedly on the verge of filing sexual harassment complaints against him. If she was that close to taking that drastic step, I find it hard to believe that she went on this trip willingly. But you can only force someone into making a trip like that to an extent. If she really truly did not want to go, she wouldn't have gone. Would there have been consequences? Perhaps. If she felt like her position would have been in jeopardy if she didn't go along with this business trip, then that's textbook sexual harassment. If she felt that strongly about Salazar, if he made her feel that truly uncomfortable, I don't believe she would have gone. 
and she could have very easily come up with an excuse that it was her birthday. She could have said that her family had big plans and that she couldn't make it. That is really just about the perfect exit strategy, but she didn't do that either. Maybe he talked her into it, made her promises that she couldn't turn down. It could have gone either way. We just don't know. The bottom line is Sandra went. And not only did Sandra go, she went to dinner with him and the other executive. And when they got back to the hotel, they drank and danced. Then they began hugging and kissing, according to at least one witness at the hotel. According to that witness, who had no dog in the fight, right? He said that Sandra appeared to be very much willingly and happily enjoying herself. Afterwards, they went up to their hotel rooms, and according to Salazar, while actively not being attracted to Sandra, she somehow managed to pull him into her hotel room. Do we believe him? No, we don't, because we know he has reasons to lie. Sandra's family said that she would never. She didn't like him. She didn't like his advances. She was fearful of heights. And they specifically said she hated balconies, which mm, can be somewhat oddly specific. People will generally talk about being afraid of heights. I'm somewhat afraid of heights. I don't like looking over the edge of the Grand Canyon. I don't like Ferris wheels. I used to get a little loopy loopy woozy woozy at Knott's Berry Farm whenever I went onto the sky jump or in the sky cabin, but I still went. But in general, I'll tell people that I don't like heights. I might say that I don't like the Grand Canyon or some amusement park rides, but I don't know if I would specifically bring up balconies. In fact, lounging on a balcony is something that I actually like doing. I have a balcony that I lounge on now. Granted, it is only one story up but I still sure as hell wouldn't want to fall off of it. I might be overthinking this a little bit, and I'm not going to sit here and say that I don't believe Sandra's family in the same way that I don't believe Salazar, but what I will say is that I believe they believe those things about Sandra, that they want to believe those things because it makes sense to them when they settled on what they think happened in that hotel room that night. It fits, and it casts a very negative light onto Salazar. Incidentally, the lead detective on Sandra's case had since retired by the time Salazar's case made it to trial, but he would end up coming out of retirement to help with the case and to testify. Rodriguez would be able to provide the testimony that he found the shoe and the underwear belonging to Salazar in Sandra's room and how he was the one to first confront Salazar about those damning pieces of evidence and in regards to his inconsistent statements. As I stated, the prosecutor was going with the idea that this was an ongoing sexual harassment issue, that Salazar was in fact the aggressor and Sandra, his subordinate, was for all intents and purposes a victim of this workplace harassment. Salazar was made to admit to the jury that he did have a bachelor's degree in business management and he was familiar with laws governing sexual harassment and that he also had to admit that when he was promoted to third in command at his company, that he took part in writing their very company policies on sexual harassment. And it was a company policy that forbid sex between a person in a supervisory position with anyone subordinate to them. The prosecutor accused Salazar of killing Sandra when it dawned on him that they were doing something that would cost him his 
very cozy job. Telling Salazar while on the stand, if Sandra Oriana had survived that night, she could have ratted to anyone on the planet that he got me drunk and he had sex with me. Salazar retorted, if we had been thinking that far ahead, we would not have been doing that. The theory was that all this was a plan totally orchestrated by Salazar himself, from the time he arranged for Sandra to accompany him on this trip, to the time that he was going to get her drunk, that he was going to get her alone, and that he was going to have sex with her. The problem was that Sandra fought back against his advances, scratching his face in the process, that this angered him, and realizing that he was at this point of no return, that the only way to keep this a secret between the two of them is if one of them was dead. And the prosecutor told the court that Salazar tried to make it appear as though Sandra took her own life by throwing her. Salazar's attorney, however, argued that both he and Sandra were extremely intoxicated that night, that what happened was an unfortunate accident. Sandra was pretty much blamed that it was her own recklessness that caused her own death, not Salazar. However, when it came to a criminologist who worked for Los Angeles County, she provided testimony about the physical evidence that she found in Sandra's room, and she had to concede under cross-examination that there wasn't anything she found in Sandra's hotel room that was indicative of a life-and-death struggle having taken place. The defense called an expert that provided testimony that seemed to me, anyway, to dispute reports about where Sandra's body had actually landed. Now, through every article that I've read, it said that in order for Sandra's body to have landed where it landed, some amount of force had to be applied to get her to land that distance away from the hotel. However, the defense expert came to the stand and said that Sandra's body was found so close to the actual building itself that it would have been impossible for her to have landed where she landed if she had been pushed or tossed, that she would have landed further out. This part of the testimony threw me off for a while in the middle of this episode because I began to wonder who was right and who was wrong. I think Sandra would have fallen straight down and close to the building if she had accidentally fallen off the railing in the manner in which Salazar described. But it has been clearly stated online that Sandra was found a distance away from the building and that they measured it and experts tried to recreate it and they were unable to do so. No matter every which way they tried to toss that fire hose dummy, they couldn't get it to land where Sandra landed. They stated that in order to get that dummy to land where she did, they had to throw that dummy hard and even then they couldn't get it. Here's the thing though, that fire hose dummy bounced. So I think it was a flawed experiment to begin with. Another thing about the balcony is that they said the railing was 44 inches tall, slightly more than three feet, just under one meter. Sandra was 62 inches tall slightly less than 1.6 meters, meaning she was only 18 inches taller than the railing, which was 45 centimeters. Point being that Sandra likely would have been unable to fall off the balcony accidentally, but Salazar's story wasn't that she was standing on the ground and accidentally lost her balance and toppled over the side of the railing. He said she went to go sit on it. I'll post some screenshots of the balcony and I think you'll see that it is a very precarious situation 
to be putting oneself in to try and sit on that railing in order to continue having sex. Even the most drunk person ever, I think, would sober up real quick on a cold November night on a balcony that high. But that's just an opinion. Sandra could have been feeling adventurous that evening. But again, the dust tells another story. In the end, Salazar would end up being the star witness of his own trial, the only person alive to provide an account of what happened the night that Sandra fell to her death. He went in and out of being emotional at times during his testimony. There were times when he displayed no emotion at all, but he was quite passionate as he proclaimed, as God is my witness, I did not murder her. On November 5th, 2002, nearly six years to the day Sandra died, a jury of seven men and five women took nine hours of deliberations to find Robert Salazar not guilty of both first-degree murder and second-degree murder. Following the verdict, Salazar's wife, Beth, cried out in joy, because this is a moment to be joyous, right? Salazar embraced his attorney, and afterwards, he provided a statement offering prayers to Sandra's family, prayers to his own family, and reiterated that this was a tragic accident and he's real sorry about what happened. That's a quote. Real sorry. Sorry for what? Bringing Sandra along on a trip that she had no business being on. Sorry for getting her drunk at the hotel bar. Sorry for dancing, hugging, kissing, laughing, and having a good time while his wife was back at home in Houston, Texas, caring for their two young children, one of them still a newborn. Sorry for allowing himself to be forcibly yanked into the hotel room of a woman that he found completely unattractive. Sorry for going out into that balcony with Sandra and that she somehow went over the railing and fell to her death. Sorry for forgetting his shoe and underwear when he ran like a coward back to his own room. Sorry for sitting in his hotel for nine hours doing nothing to help Sandra. Sorry for lying to police and to covering up what he did. Or just sorry for his own self, for having to be put through the inconvenience of a murder trial. One juror told the LA Times that they did not necessarily believe Salazar, but they didn't have enough evidence to prove anything criminal took place, and I'm okay with that. Another juror said kind of the same thing that I said earlier in the episode, that it was hard to believe that Salazar would actually do something like that, throw Sandra off the balcony. But I thought it would have been difficult for him to throw her as hard as he would have had to in order to get her to land where she did. The juror felt like it was hard to believe that he was the kind of person who would actually commit the act and was bothered by the lack of evidence that a struggle had taken place in the hotel room. Though I think in a hotel room, that can be somewhat deceiving. There's not a whole lot of things that are going to be disturbed in a hotel. Items such as lamps and fixtures are often secured to tables and to the wall, so they can't be moved or taken. And to me, Salazar's shoe being twisted up in the bedding could have been something that happened during some kind of struggle. But the experts who examined the physical evidence at the scene testified there was a lack of anything that showed that a struggle had taken place. In the end, the prosecutor felt as if the jury overlooked important aspects of the case, at least two aspects that Salazar repeatedly lied to police and that it was impossible for Sandra to have fallen the way she did as described by Salazar himself. 
To me, I feel like the dust evidence wasn't explained thoroughly enough. But then again, there was a very high profile case going on that had been going on, and that would have been the murder of John Benet Ramsey, which happened a little more than a month after Sandra was killed, where dust and cobwebs were an issue that could have gone either way too. Whether or not a person could have entered in through the basement of the Ramsey home through a window and left dust and cobwebs undisturbed. It seemed like experts go back and forth on that dust evidence too. Even though I think it's important, it simply may not have been all that compelling. So what I want to know is what all of you think about this. Accident, murder, suicide, or impossible to know. This is one of those cases where no matter how much of a garbage person Salazar was and probably still is today, it doesn't mean that he's a murderer. Do you think that there were lesser charges that could have been included in the indictment? Maybe something like negligent homicide? While police believe this to be a murder and the jury for the most part believe that it wasn't, I tend to think that it probably falls somewhere in the middle. And you know, the outcome could have been much different if this had taken place today. Video cameras would have told a clear story technology and all of the advancements in crime scene investigations, it would have been very different today. Robert Salazar still did the wrong thing. Aside from being a terrible person, he lied to police and he failed to get help for Sandra. Did he suffer enough in the aftermath of what happened? Maybe, because life probably wasn't great after Sandra died, in his personal life or his professional one. And that, my dreamers, is a wrap for episode 244. Don't forget to follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Patrons, be on the lookout for your December bonus. There is plenty more to come this month, so fear not. If your other favorite shows are taking vacations or winter breaks, I'll be around for sure, I promise. I want to thank all of you so much for listening, and until next time... Sweet dreams. Oh, and thank you all for all of the birthday wishes. In the last episode, I told you I was going to California for a birthday. I don't like bringing up my birthday. It just seems really like, you know, something you would do when you're a teenager or in your 20s or 30s. But as I'm getting older, it's not that big of a deal. But thank you anyway for all of the birthday love. And again, until next time, sweet dreams.